And now Hello, everyone. Um, on behalf of Autism Speaks, Autism Science Foundation, and Escher Fund for Autism, I would like to welcome everyone to this webinar, The Potential Role of Epigenetics and Sex Differences in Autism, featuring Drs. Tracy Bale and Dr. Donna Worling. My name is Jill Escher, and I'm joined by your host today, Dr. Alicia Halliday, Chief Science Officer at Autism Science Foundation. Dr. Matt Pletcher of Autism Speaks sends his regrets he could not join us today. The first three webinars in this series explored a variety of emerging subjects, the complicated biology of germ cells, new findings regarding de novo mutations in autism, the epigenetic and mutagenic effects of certain exposures, and new findings in a field related to impairments in neurodevelopment called genomic imprinting. All these webinars are online, available through the asfpodcast.org website or the homepage of my website, germlineexposures.org. You can also mark your calendars for January 24th, when our speaker series continues with Dr. Mark Zilka of the University of North Carolina, who will present on epigenetically regulated genes. At any time during or after the presentations, please feel free to submit questions via the question bar, which you should see on your screen. Um, FYI, everyone is on mute during this webinar, so don't worry if you're making some noise. And a quick note, in the past, some participants could not find the screen. It may be hiding beneath your browser, so take a look. Today's topic, sex differences in autism, is something I personally think about and witness every day. I have both a son and a daughter with severe nonverbal non forms of autism. They attend different autism schools and a variety of different programs and camps, and in all cases, the boys vastly outnumber the girls. In fact, for years, my daughter Sophie was the sole girl in her autism class of about eight to 10 boys. Um, and as someone who supports research in the realm of epigenetics, I wonder about the various molecular mechanisms that may be at play in this phenotypic phenomenon. With that, I will now turn it over to Dr. Alicia Halliday. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to introduce our two amazing speakers so we can, we can get to it. Um, so thank you again to Dr. Tracy Bale and Dr. Donna Worling for joining us today. They're both huge gits for this webinar series. Dr. Bale is the professor of neuroscience, the Department of Biomedical Sciences in the School of Veterinary Medicine, and also in the Department of Psychiatry at the School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. She's co-director of the Penn Center for Sex the Study of Sex and Gender and Behavioral Health, which is funded by NIMH and ORWH. She serves on many internal and external advisory committees, panels, boards, and is a reviewing editor at the Journal of Neuroscience and serves as chair of a CSR study section. She's been the recipient of several awards for her research in this area, including the Career Development Award for Early Career Achievement and Promise by the Society of Neuroscience, and the Richard Weitzman Memorial Award as the Exceptionally Promising Young Investigator by the Endocrine Society, and the Medtronic Award for the Society of Women's Health Research for Outstanding Research that's Led to the Improvement of Women's Health. Her lab's been developing and testing different transgenic lines of mice, which means they have different genetic mutations, to examine genetic, epigenetic, and environmental effects on offspring who've experienced early prenatal stress. Their lab does this to understand how this might affect the increased susceptibility to neurodevelopmental disorders, including changes in stress reactivity, behaviors, and cognitive functions. 
She focuses on how these behaviors are transferred across generations and how they differ between male and female offspring. She does this by studying specific molecular and epigenetic changes in the placenta and embryonic inflammation, nutrient transport, and changes in epigenetic machinery during early gestation and the period in the mice from birth to adulthood. She received her PhD in pharmacology and neurobiology from the University of Washington, and recently she published an article called Sex is a Biological Variable, Who, What, When, and How. This is really the guidebook on how and why sex should be incorporated into biological analyses, because even in autism with the male bias of 4 to 1, which Dr. Worling will talk about, sometimes the sex difference is not studied. So thank you so much, Dr. Bale. And a special thanks goes out to her because she's taking time out of a busy meeting schedule at the Society of Neuroscience in California to join us today. But before we jump into Dr. To Dr. Bale's presentation, based on the comments on Facebook and comments and feedback to us, it became clear that some people in the audience were not aware of the sex difference in the diagnosis between males and females. So Donna Worling, a researcher at UCSF who was funded by the Autism Science Foundation to study sex differences from a genetic level, has agreed to give a short introduction on the topic just, so, just to give some information about why this topic of sex differences is so important in autism. Dr. Worling is currently a postdoctoral fellow working jointly with Dr. Stefan Sanders and Matt State in the Department of Psychiatry at UCSF. She previously completed her PhD in neuroscience with Dr. Dan Geshwin at UCLA. Her work focuses on identifying and understanding the biological mechanisms that contribute to the development of autism, including risk gene discovery and investigations of the pathways by which sex differences in neurobiology impact autism risk in males and females. Let's start with Dr. Worling's presentation to get everyone a short background on the genetics and epigenetics of sex differences in autism. I want to say, though, this is not meant to be a sweeping review. Actually, Dr. Worling was part of a panel at the Interagency Coordinating Committee that did a broad 10,000-foot look at sex differences in autism, and I can post that URL for the presentation in our podcast, but I just wanted to warn everyone, this is a 10 to 15-minute introduction. It will be short and focused. So there may be many issues that she did not cover, but it's a good place to start. So I want to turn it over to Dr. Donna Worling. All right. Can can you see my slides? I can. It's Alicia. I can see them. Great. Okay. Let's make them bigger. Okay, great. So thank you very much for that introduction, Alicia. I'm happy to be here and presenting today. And of course, uh, like we all know, um, going back, hold on. All right. Um, the, the main presentation today is obviously from Dr. Tracy Bale, and the goal of this introduction, of course, is to go over some background information about the relationship between sex and the presentation of autism symptoms and traits and genetic risk for autism, or at least what we know about these things currently. So the first main point here is that autism prevalence is sex biased. So approximately four times as many males as females have a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. And this male bias has been consistent over time and across countries, across different variations of 
um, diagnostic criteria. So if you look at the plot I'm showing here on the right, this is a summary of a number of epidemiological studies performed in different countries at different times. Um, and the plot is showing you the male to female ratio, so the, the ratio of the number of males identified with autism diagnoses to the number of females. And this vertical line here marks a ratio of one, which would be an equivalent number of males and females. And you can see that every one of these points is to the right of this line, meaning that every single one of these epidemiological studies found a greater number of males with autism diagnoses than females. This is a very consistent, very striking feature of autism spectrum disorders. Interestingly, this male skew appears to vary by the intellectual ability of the individuals that, um, that you're looking at. So among individuals with normal to high IQ and an ASD diagnosis, the male to female ratio can be as high as 9 to 1. Uh, meaning that there are, for, for individuals in this range of IQ and, and cognitive ability, there are a greater number of males identified, an even greater number of males identified with ASD diagnoses. Among individuals who have autism and a comorbid diagnosis of intellectual disability, this male-to-female ratio is much smaller. It's not equivalent. There are still more males than females, but it, it's much closer than for individuals with normal to high IQ. Um, so we know, of course, that there is this difference in prevalence or difference in the rate of diagnosis. And we're also now starting, as a field, are starting to appreciate that there are differences in the ways that male and female um, ASD symptoms present. So from a phenotypic level, we know, like I mentioned in the previous slide, that a greater proportion of diagnosed females also have comorbid intellectual disability. Um, with the caveat, of course, that intellectual disability is not formally a part of autism diagnoses, but this is a, a, a definite sex difference in, in the presentation here. Um, we know or a number of studies are beginning to show some sort of consensus that females with ASD tend to show fewer restricted interests than males. So repetitive behaviors and restricted interests are one of the main um, domains of diagnostic criteria for autism. And this is one domain in which females are um, consistently showing lower scores or, or less behavior in this domain. And that's shown in the plot on the right here. Um, we there's also um, growing data now from neuroimaging studies, both studying brain structure and brain function, that there are um, sex differences between sex differences in the brain between males and females with ASD. And, and the, the sorts of studies are in their early days, but there is preliminary evidence suggesting that there are differences in brain structure and function as well. Another way that autistic females tend to differ from males are in the, uh, their social ability and social strategies. So another one of the main domains of diagnostic criteria for ASD is, of course, social communication and social ability. And there are, have been a number of studies that report differences in this domain. So for example, female children with ASD, as reported by their parents, tend to show greater desire to be liked by their peers than male 
children with ASD do, and they're more likely to use mimicking as a social strategy. So observing other individuals in their class, maybe who are particularly social or have a lot of friends, and they will try to mimic their behaviors. In contrast, male children with ASD are more likely to simply withdraw from social situations as opposed to mimicking and, and still getting engaged. Um, there were also it was also an interesting study looking at adults who have a diagnosis of ASD and among these individuals who could self-report their own traits. Um, these women who came in presented with fewer social communication difficulties than males during a clinical observations when a clinician is giving the ADOS, which is a, a measure of autistic behaviors. Um, the females who were evaluated showed fewer difficulties with social communication. But at the same time, when these women were asked to report on their own ASD traits using, using the autism quotient measure, the females reported more ASD traits than the males did. And this disconnect um, between the, the social ability of these women as observed by a clinician and their self-experienced level of difficulty has led to this hypothesis or the, the coining of this term called camouflaging, which is this idea that females with ASD, particularly those um, with normal to high IQ who are verbal, might be working very hard to mask or camouflage their social difficulties. So camouflaging in this case means um, as I've stated here, the conscious or observational learning of how to act in a social situation by adopting social roles and following social scripts. So this is a very kind of rote memorization approach to dealing with uh, social interaction. And this can work um, in a clinical setting to mask social issues from a clinician, but um, these women who report uh, or describe using this as a social strategy also tend to point out that um, this requires substantial effort on their part to maintain this strategy on a prolonged basis and it, is, it can be exhausting and distressing. Um, so more work in this field is, is very much needed to better identify these girls and women and to provide them with the support services they need that can alleviate this distress. So I'll do a brief uh, halfway point summary to recap. Uh, we know that males and females are diagnosed with ASD at different rates. They present some ASD symptoms to different degrees, and they tend to show different social motivation and strategies for navigating social interactions. So the next question is, why does this happen? Why do males and females differ in these ways, and what is responsible for these differences? And this female protective effect model that I'm now showing you is one possible framework that we use for thinking about the difference in ASD risk or the difference in ASD presentation in males and females. So under this model, this framework, we assume that um, liability or risk for ASD is quantitative, that we can give it a score, a numerical score, and then it's distributed in the population. And that males and females have different thresholds or minimum levels of liability beyond which individuals uh, show a diagnosable phenotype of ASD. And we call this model the female protective effect model because there appears to be this range of liability, so in the light gray here, that is sufficient to lead to ASD in males but not in females. So it appears that females are protected from liability in this range. And we hypothesize that this could be due to aspects of female biology that protect females or and or um, aspects of male biology that, that make them more vulnerable to liability in this range. 
So we can determine whether this model is truly a useful way of thinking about this question by making predictions and testing them. And one key prediction from this model is that when we look at individuals who have an ASD diagnosis, so anyone above these thresholds to the right, we would predict that um, females with ASD would have greater liability than males do. And the aspect of ASD risk or liability that we understand the best currently is genetic risk, and I'll go into that um, in more detail next. So we assume that, um, make the prediction that females with ASD have greater genetic risk than males do. All right, so um, this slide is, is I'll, I'll give you a very brief background on the strategies that have been used so far to find genetic loci that contribute to risk for ASD, and then we'll go back to the prediction from the female protective effect model. But we know from early twin studies and sibling studies that genetics contribute to risk for autism. So identical twins are more likely to be concordant for ASD than non-identical twins, and the siblings of autistic individuals have an elevated risk for ASD themselves. Now historically, most the most common strategies for finding risk genes in autism and in any disorder um, has been to to look for genetic variants that are inherited from mom and dad and that are common in the population. Um, so one strategy here is a family-based study. This is meant to show a pedigree, dad, mom, children, these two are affected. And, and the goal of a family-based study like this is to identify genetic variants that uh, affected family members share with each other. So if you can see this pink-purple um, variant is meant to represent a genetic variant that these individuals share. Another approach is a case control study where um, we look at very large sample sizes, tens of thousands of individuals who have ASD or who do not have ASD, and we look for common genetic variants that occur more frequently in cases. So that's illustrated by the, the purple circles here. And these approaches, both of these approaches are valid and useful, but due to the sample sizes that we as a field have been able to collect so far, they haven't been necessarily um, as fruitful as we want. And actually for ASD, autism, um, studying genetic variants that are not inherited has been really key in recent years for finding specific genes that are involved in ASD risk. And what I mean by non-inherited variants are uh, mutations that are not inherited from mom and dad, but they occur brand new in a sperm or egg cell. And we call these de novo variants. So because these de novo variants are brand new, natural selection has not had a chance to act on them yet, and so they're more likely to have harmful consequences um, than variants that are passed down through generations. And um, locating de novo variants in kids with ASD, um, particularly variants that disrupt gene function, has allowed us to identify um, 65 genes so far um, that are associated with ASD risk. That's illustrated by the, the little red mutation down here in the affected child. So there are 65 genes that we can associate with ASD risk. And these 65 genes mainly fall into two networks of biological function. So uh, genes having to do with function at the synapse, which is the connection between neurons, and genes having to do with chromatin, which is the way that DNA is packaged and stored in the nucleus. Now, a, a study published last year found that males and females with ASD are equally likely to have a mutation in genes belonging to either, um, either biological network. 
And, and this suggests um, that both of these biological pathways are involved in autism risk in males and females. And this is in contrast to an alternative hypothesis where we might guess that perhaps um, different sets of genes contribute to ASD in males versus females. But we're finding that that, that, that that is not the case. And this would suggest that sex differences in autism risk are actually a difference of degree, not of kind, if that makes sense since the same bio biological pathways are implicated. No, so now that we have a little bit of background on um, the approaches used to find genes and, um, and how those genes are distributed across males and females, we'll go back to the prediction that I mentioned from the female protective effect, which is that um, females with ASD should have a greater um, genetic risk than males with ASD on average. And we when we look at de novo variants, we find evidence that is consistent with that prediction. So when we look at de novo copy number variants, so this is when entire sections of chromosomes are either deleted or duplicated, we find that a greater proportion of females um, with ASD have this type of de novo variant than males do. When we look at variants called indels or insertion deletion, this is when only a handful of base pairs are inserted into the genome or deleted. We find a very similar pattern that females with ASD, uh, a greater proportion of females with ASD have these types of variants um, than males do. When we look at single nucleotide variants, when um, just a single base pair is altered or, uh, or removed in the genome, um, we find again the same pattern. A greater proportion of females have this type of deleterious harmful variant than males do. So um, this is consistent with the idea that females have greater genetic risk than males, and it suggests that the female protective effect model is a useful framework at this point for thinking about the question of sex differential risk and presentation. Now moving forward, um, the next step in the field that is already underway is, is to work to identify and understand the mechanisms that are responsible for um, protecting non-diagnosed females and the mechanisms that are responsible for increasing vulnerability in males um, in a way that can explain these differences that we see at the genetic level. So stay tuned. Um, to just summarize the points that I've made here quickly, um, with regard to prevalence, ASD is diagnosed, diagnosed more frequently in males and females. We have growing evidence that autism looks different in males than in females, and we're working to understand uh, what those differences are and how they manifest. And then from the genetic level, we know that genetic variation contributes to risk. We've found that a common set of genes is involved in, in risk for autism in males and in females. And this is consistent with the idea of a female protective effect model, um, where we see a greater proportion of diagnosed females carrying um, particularly harmful mutations um, as opposed to males. And with that, I think we can move on to Tracy Bale's presentation. Yes, thank you so much. This is Alicia. Again, I just want to remind people we are going to be taking questions. There should be a question um, screen within the GoToWebinar panel. And then also, if you want to email me, my email is a-h-a-l-l-a-d-a-y at autismsciencefoundation.org. Um, I'll make sure that your questions are included. So thank you. Okay, so uh, this is uh, Tracy Bale, and I want to thank um, 
Jill and Lisha for the invitation to uh, present this webinar and discuss some of the research that's ongoing in the field and in my lab, specifically uh, targeted toward understanding the prenatal environment and how it contributes to sex differences uh, in autism or specifically, or more generally I should say in my lab, we think about neurodevelopmental disorders in general and that there is a uh, I know that uh, Dr. Willing presented specifically the statistics for autism, but if you look at uh, the broader landscape of neurodevelopmental disease risk, uh, there is an overarching bias toward males being at much greater risk for, for most of those disorders, whether it's disease presentation, onset, severity, et cetera. So trying to understand the landscape and the mechanisms will help us to uh, design, I think, better therapies and preventions for those disorders. Okay, so my slides are not advancing. Okay, let's do this. Okay, so I know that Dr. William presented the statistics for the, the male bias in autism, but as I said, we're interested in understanding the, the periods of brain development of vulnerability that lend itself toward sex differences. And so it's really important first to understand how the brain develops and the sex differences that, that occur just naturally and that are important for men and women throughout life. And if you look epidemiologically, there are uh, great cohorts that have been studied extensively over time. This is just an example from studies on the Dutch hunger winter. You can also look at data from the Swedish famine. There's many different studies now that look at uh, different Chinese famines as well. So these are basically experiences and exposures that have occurred over history that individuals, epidemiologists and scientists in general have studied these individuals over multiple generations to try and understand the, the periods of life of greater risk and the exposures that happen to increase disease and or health outcomes. Um, and that's really important also to understand. We tend to think of um, and understanding mechanisms for neurodevelopmental or autism uh, disorders and the male bias as being the increased risk for males. But I think it's essentially and very important scientifically to also examine it from the other spectrum, which is the female resilience. Because bo understanding both can help us to understand uh, the disease risk factors involved. So the Dutch hunger winter was a period at the end of World War II uh, it was the winter of 1944-1945, getting towards the end of the war, when the Germans imposed an extensive food embargo on Western Holland. Um, and this occurred during a period of time, of, it was winter, there was not access to calories for most of the people in that area. So they were limited somewhere between 400 and 800 calories per day. That's the equivalent of basically a mocha frappuccino from Starbucks being your entire daily intake. And this included, of course, pregnant women. So epidemiologists and scientists have used these cohorts to examine health risk uh, and longevity disease. And so they've really extensively mined these first generation individuals. So if mom was pregnant, understanding the disease risk for the, that first generation offspring. Um, but as Dr. William pointed out, there's different periods of life of, of which environmental exposures and genetic risk can intersect. And so the germ cells, and this is really important to think about, the germ cells of those babies were also exposed in utero, giving rise to risk or resilience for then that next generation as well. 
And so epidemiologists have studied these Dutch hunger winter cohorts of individuals, and there's such things as, um, you know, through three generations now, looking at birth weights and longevity, there's some really impressive data that has examined um, health resilience as well, that caloric restriction having some beneficial effects as well as risk, depending on what outcomes you're looking at. And no doubt, as Dr. Worling highlighted, so important to think about your genetic background as well. So the National Institute of Mental Health has really promoted the idea for understanding uh, neuropsychiatric and neurodevelopmental disorders as being the intersection of developmental windows in your life by your, your genetic background, by your environmental exposures. And those sort of present as your overall you know, health and disease risk. So they've studied in these cohorts things like cardiovascular disease, longevity, and they, they have uh, nicely specified them examining the pregnant women as when this specific food embargo occurred, was it first, second, or third trimester? And that's really given a lot of evidence toward which periods of development is also of greater risk. And so they've examined things like the, the reduction in cognitive function across multiple generations, increased risk for neurodevelopmental disorders such as schizophrenia, and more recently, individuals have actually looked at these multiple generations, especially into the third generation, generation, because we can be more assured then that these are changes in what we know as epigenetics. So these are changes in how genes will ultimately be expressed uh, in different cells of your body that may uh, are not changes in the DNA code, uh, per what Dr. Worling was talking about, but more biochemical marks on the DNA, and those can be inherited as well. And so individuals have now gone uh, pretty far down in the weeds of examining what those changes might be by taking blood samples from uh, these cohorts and looking at things such as uh, insulin-like growth factor 2 and how the different methylation, which is again a biochemical mark on the DNA, have been passed on. And so these studies have really just begun to examine uh, the generational effects of how environmental exposures, and no doubt the, the German-imposed food embargo that occurred during the end of World War II was also an extremely stressful period, and so I'll be talking a lot more about stress specifically. But there's obviously in our world many different experiences and exposures from pharmaceutical exposures, stress experience, and dietary challenges, immune interactions. So. There's many different ways in which the developing germ cells and fetus can be exposed environmentally that might be uh, important for understanding disease risk. And I think that's one of the reasons uh, that disease, understanding disease is so complicated when it comes to the brain. So I wanted to highlight a little bit, and I think Dr. Worling touched on this, because we're going to be talking today about sex differences, that it's important to think about what we know about sex differences across the lifespan. So I work with a psychiatrist, Neil Epperson, at the University of Pennsylvania, and we've put together several reviews. This is actually a figure from one of those reviews that's talked a lot about when different neuropsychiatric and neurodevelopmental disorders seem to be both programmed and manifest, and that can tell us a lot when understanding sex differences about the vulnerability of the brain. And so you can see on the bottom there in the blue boxes of the different stages of life, we actually start off with early life, which can actually be prenatal or early postnatal. But I want to highlight that more recent studies have actually also identified sort of the preconceptual stage, meaning mom or dad's life experiences to different environmental exposures 
can alter their germ cells that can then alter, of course, their offspring outcomes. So if you look at different types of neuropsychiatric or neurodevelopmental disorders, you can see that early life is a clear period of increased male risk. And if you speak with a neonatologist, a NICU nurse, any pediatrician, they will highlight the fact that they will see a lot more boys in the NICU, that boys will stay longer in the NICU after birth. Girls, they, they, there's a saying that they have that girls go home before boys. So there seems to be something specific about that in utero time period of brain development that makes boys more at risk. And I'll talk some about our research that's examining that. If you then uh, flash forward to the complex period of adolescence, and adolescence is very complicated in terms of how the brain is maturing, the plasticity of the brain. There's so many differences that are occurring between males and females, uh, in large part because it's intersecting at a period of time in which gonadal hormones can produce dramatic changes in brain function. So males begin to produce large amounts of testosterone, and that's interacting with the brain. And again, there's a period of early brain development, I think Dr. Worling touched on this, where sex differences in the brain really do begin very early in life. And this is a natural process by which the brain itself, due to exposure in utero, and this is true for all mammals, that the male testis, the male testes begin to produce testosterone in utero, and those testes and that testosterone exposure are very important for programming virtually all cells in the male to be responsive later in life to what will become adolescent hormones. And so that testosterone produces hosts of functions in cells, including and especially in the developing brain. So by the time you are an adolescent, the male and female brain have already begun to dramatically diverge. And so if you conducted a fMRI uh, analysis of the male and female brain, we know that there are specific regions in the brain that just by looking at, at the size of those brain regions, you will see that there are, are differences. And it's not all in one direction. There are some regions of the brain that are larger in a male and some regions that are larger in a female. And those are in large part shaped in utero. And they're very important, not because it's, it's not a binary, it's not a yes or a no or a one or the other. It's actually a continuum. And that has to do with the combination of both that in utero hormonal exposure that happens for males as well as the intersection later in life uh, during adolescence with the, what we call activational hormones produced during puberty. And so the intersection there is critical for having been programmed appropriately during in utero time and intersecting appropriately during adolescence. So with that, I want to highlight that it's quite easy, I think, to conceive of how the environment could disrupt those processes resulting in inappropriate actions, either because of timing, amount, or activational uh, points in life. So we've highlighted on this figure, for instance, that uh, schizophrenia, which doesn't have a real dramatic overall sex bias in, in lifetime, but if you actually sort out schizophrenia when the presentation and symptoms, I think as Dr. Worling highlighted for autism as well, that schizophrenia as another neurodevelopmental disorder has an absolute uh, dramatic increase in male presentation during that late adolescence, early adulthood, where for women, actually, there's a blip of increased risk for schizophrenia kind of in the perimenopausal time period. So this is really important that as scientists we think broadly about these lifespan, uh, both for presentation and risk of disease, but also 
our germ cells and what they're being exposed to and what that might mean uh, thinking of autism again in that increased risk for for males uh, over females so I just want to highlight quick because I'll be talking a lot about stress today and thinking about the environment so the environmental exposures as I've said can be many different things it could be pharmaceutical exposures it can be stress which I'll be talking about it can be uh, dietary challenges such as low protein in a, in a pregnant woman's diet or high fat our current obesity epidemic is also an issue for exposures both prenatally and, and over the lifespan um, as well as maternal immune activation so there's lots of evidence again for autism risk if mom has had um, a viral infection of some kind so my lab focuses a lot on understanding stress and what I want to highlight just for a, an overall comprehension because I know we have a, um, a wide array in the audience of, of scientists and non-scientists that when we think about stress in our environment stress is a very important the ability for our brain to perceive stress in the environment and appropriately respond is essential and so many of you who may have children with autism or a neurodevelopmental disorder will note that even when your children are doing really well if you place them in a, an environment they're not familiar with or somehow stress their schedule you will see perhaps, uh, possibly a, a presentation of, of more dramatic symptoms etc and so the appropriate response to stress or how the dysregulated brain may be programmed developmentally I think is an important aspect certainly for autism but across most neurodevelopmental disorders and the reason I'm highlighting this is because I'll be talking about a lot of the research that I do in my lab and that occurs in the field and a lot of it is is using rodent models so mouse and rat models and I want to emphasize the reason we do that I will I will talk about later but it has a lot to do with the fact we can manipulate many aspects um, of the mouse genome to understand the role of genes um, as was highlighted by Alicia that we do in the lab called transgenics and I'll, I'll show you a little slide of that but it's also important when understanding stress circuitry how the brain perceives stress and the real neurobiology behind how we respond to stress is actually very similar between rats mice and humans so that helps to translate what we study in the lab to how important it might be for understanding disease because we can look at the different periods of the brain and how it develops and sex differences and putting all that together we can hopefully translate uh, to understand risk for humans so I'm going to be talking about maternal uh, experiences today my lab also does paternal meaning dad's life experiences as well and how important that is um, and the epigenetic or biochemical changes that occur in, in the male's germ cells are very important as well but for time's sake we're just going to stick with mom's experiences today so as I said earlier, it's, it's really important to understand and appreciate that during pregnancy and even preconceptionally, so before mom is pregnant, that things in the environment intersect a large part, as Dr. Worling pointed out, with the genetics. So you may be, have a genetic background or the baby will have a genetic background, inheritance of different um, polymorphisms and genes that make them either more at risk or more resilient. And then you add on top of that genetic risk the environment and it's really that part that we think is the greatest risk for uh, presentation right this is not a guarantee if you're exposed to a virus that your child will have a disease but rather an increase or decrease in risk and so I've just highlighted here some different aspects of maternal experiences such as maternal depression or stress exposure during pregnancy maternal obesity or dietary challenges as well as maternal infection and there are groups uh, all around the country who are studying these different um, 
experiences of mom and how they may impart those effects on the developing offspring, the sex specificity of that, as well as the developmental windows, meaning first, second, or third trimester, as you would think about that in, in development. Um, so it's also really important to keep in mind that, again, one of the reasons that we use animal models besides the transgenics is because we can we can learn a lot about in utero exposures because of course rodents have litters meaning there there can be anywhere from eight to ten uh, babies developing in a female and thereby we have males and females in the exact same in utero environment and so when there's different outcomes uh, in those offspring following an exposure we can then learn a lot about the, the sex differences in the developing brain so uh, this just brings us back to the point of what, what we think of in my lab as the battle of the sexes and understanding the different periods of brain development that may impart a sex bias such as in autism where it's anywhere from four to five to one of boys to girls and why that is. So thinking about uh, conversations with my clinician friends who see this increased risk neonatally and primarily prenatally for males so if mom is exposed, uh, in the case of a rodent, to an environmental challenge such as stress, why is it that you would see an outcome in males that you would not see in females? And that's what I'm going to talk about today. Um, so for those who don't work in the science uh, arena and understand what we do with rodents, this is uh, a, a several graphs just highlighting many of the different ways that we can use rodents in the lab to get at translational outcomes that might be of relevance to neurodevelopmental changes and disease risk. So this is just showing you an overview of we can look at physiological outcomes that are similar between rodents and humans, such as changes in birth weight, changes in trajectory of growth, because we know in many neurodevelopmental disorders that there are periods of time where there's an intersection with, uh, with really with the gut and how the gut responds to diet as well. And I know that in autism there is a large uh, a cohort of, of odd children with autism who have GI problems as well and I know that there's also an intersection in those kids especially during um, puberty where the onset of hormones seems to exacerbate a lot of those symptoms. So a lot of those aspects we can study in the rodents as well. So we can look at changes as that graph on the left there is just showing you differences in um, what we use is an early prenatal stress. So anytime you see that EPS on any of the graphs, that just means early prenatal stress. So the, what we do in the lab is we take a pregnant female, as soon as we know that she's pregnant, and we can assign her to two experimental groups. Control, meaning she's not going to be experiencing stress and she'll just happily live in her cage and give birth and raise her young. Or we have another group of females that we then assign to experience stress. And we try to mimic this as close as we can or model this based on what we know pregnant humans would be experiencing types of psychological stress. So the, the individuals, the clinicians who study maternal stress have looked at psychological exposure such as divorce, loss of a job, having to move, death of a close loved one. So those are very uh, strong and robust psychological stresses. And we can model those in mice by doing various things, mice are very easy to stress, first of all, they respond uh, robustly to changes in their environment. So we can do things like expose them to objects that they may be afraid of, we can expose them to odors that they fear, we can restraint stress them by placing them in a, in a tube for a small period of time. And we do these exposures 
over the period of seven days. So it's about a, it's a week long stress, one stressor per day. We do different stresses. We do them different times of day. So sometimes the mouse will she'll experience a stress during the day. Sometimes she'll experience it at night. So she doesn't uh, habituate or learn to anticipate those stresses. And it's basically a way of mimicking how a human would be exposed to their environment where they're no longer in control, which um, is found to be stressful. And then we can study her offspring. We can look at all kinds of outcomes, how the brain develops, how the animals, uh, their, their litter weights, how they grow and develop, how they socially interact, how those offspring themselves respond to stress as adults. So these are, these are some of the, just the graphs here now showing some just uh, large parts of those data. So body weight changes when they, when they hit puberty. Um, we also can understand their stress response. And this, as I said in the beginning, is a really uh, translational way because the circuitry in the mouse brain, as I said, is the same as in the human. And so if we do an early life or a prenatal exposure to mom, and then we study those offspring as they become adults, we can ask, we can expose them to an acute stress. Again, we can restraint stress them. We can take blood samples from these animals. And so that curve that I'm showing you in the middle there with the black and red, lines is just showing you that the early prenatal stress animals produce more stress hormones over a period of time than their control part com uh, counterparts do. Um, and that's equivalent to what we would see in most human disease where you're more stress reactive than, than a normal individual would be. I want to highlight that when we do these studies, we're doing them very early in pregnancy for the mouse. A mouse gestation is around 19 to 20 days. And so if we break that up to be similar to first, second, and third trimesters, our studies have shown that the first trimester, really, really early developmental time, is when we're seeing these outcomes. And what was fascinating is though mom is being exposed to stress for those first seven days, really very little brain development that's occurring in those first seven days, and I'll get to that in a minute, what is happening, it was equivalent to the first trimester in a human, and you'll see from our data and what I'll talk about today, it was only the male offspring, not the females, just the male offspring that showed these changes in their brain development throughout their lifespan. And they were able to pass on the same phenotype to their sons as well, not daughters, just sons. So there is a definite sex specificity in both the initial impact of mom's exposure and then as well as the transgenerational or intergenerational transmission of that effect to the future offspring. So in large part, the lab, my lab is very interested in really trying to understand because again, in rodents, it's a litter. There are equal males and females that are developing in utero. So why is it specifically that we see these body weight changes, metabolism changes, stress reactive changes, cognitive deficits that really only show up in male but not female offspring over their lifespan. Um, so that's what I'm going to talk about today. So um, I know that Dr. Whirling spoke at length about the genetics and demonstrating that there are specific polymorphisms that suggest uh, that female presentation of autism or a neurodevelopmental disorder is more likely to involve these SNPs or these, these changes in the in, um, the genetic code. What we think are hypothesized based on the timing, and this has also been demonstrated in several different studies examining human neurodevelopmental risk in this really early first trimester period, 
So when we begin to think about what is occurring during early development, if it's not a direct impact of stress on the brain, what could stress be doing and how could it be sex specific? So this schematic here is from um, a review that I wrote last year thinking about this insult. In this case, this is showing you we would be using stress, but it could be maternal stress or diet or immune infection, et cetera. Um, and thinking about what the tissues uh, in development are that are sex specific and how those could impart different risk. One of the tissues that we think a lot about is the placenta. So what this schematic is demonstrating here is that here is the placenta. It is developing very early, in fact much earlier than the brain is developing. The placenta itself develops out of the blastocyst. So you have fertilization that occurs and the egg determines the sex because it's contributing the X or the Y. So you have a male or a female fetus that is then developing. That initial blastocyst, right, you have two cell, four cell, eight cell. Once you get to the blastocyst stage, you have a specification of a cell type called the trophectoderm. And that trophectoderm will ultimately become the, cell, the, the trophoblast cells of what's known as the placenta. What that means is that the placenta, because it develops out of the embryo itself, is itself sex-specific, meaning if it is a male embryo, it is a male placenta. If it's a female embryo, it's obviously a female placenta. There is a portion of the placenta called the maternal decidua, and that is actually the cells of mom's uterus that interact with the placenta. But what we're talking about for the most part are those cells of the placenta that are arising from the developing embryo. Also shown here in the schematic is just to remind you that while these cells of the embryo and placenta are directly being exposed to mom's environment, so are those germ cells here present in the developing embryo. And there's a chance for the environment to also reprogram those cells, which would give rise then to a second generation that, again, could be increased risk or resilience in disease. Okay, so this is just a schematic to remind you of some of the data that we're discussing today as it relates to the increased risk or sex differences in neurodevelopment. The red bar at the top is demonstrating the period in which my lab does what's called maternal stress or the early prenatal stress model. Down below is just showing you in the rodent the course of gestation that is going from early embryonic development, shown here is that blastocyst I mentioned, all the way through where you have a more complete placenta and a developing embryo. And this is just to highlight for you again the period of time in which my lab is doing this maternal stress model or the early prenatal stress is occurring at a time where there's really no early brain development occurring. There's a lot of implantation and placental development. Uh, and that is why my lab is focused in on the potential contribution of how this sex-specific tissue, which is an endocrine tissue, the placenta is, it is so critical in transferring all of the information from mom's in utero environment, all of her experiences, and relaying that information to the developing fetus throughout gestation. So you could imagine if mom is exposed to something very early in development, an infection, a stress, or dietary challenge here early in this first trimester, many women experience severe nausea during that early period and lose a lot of weight. You can imagine how this experience then could shape the cells that eventually become the placenta. And by changing the development of the placenta, you could ultimately change throughout the course of pregnancy the information that ultimately feeds into the developing brain. And that's sort of the hypothesis my lab has been examining. All right, so this is a complex 
but really actually very simple slide that talks about placental development. So several years ago, my lab began thinking about the sex differences that occur naturally in the placenta. So this is true for humans, all mammals, so humans or, or mice in this case. And we asked a really simple question, which is, if we asked over the course of gestation, so embryonic day 12 to 15 to 18, so mid-gestation, mid-late and late gestation, if we asked all of the genes that are expressed in the placenta, which will tell you in large part what's going on in the placenta at that time, if we compared across all of that period of time between embryonic days 12, 15, and 18, and that's this complex numbers of this Venn diagram showing you, you can see these large numbers. What those large numbers indicate is that there are a lot of different processes that are occurring globally across time. If you then take all of that data and ask, okay, just the genes that are sex-specific, meaning they are statistically different between males and females across all of those time points. You can see in the center of that Venn diagram on the right there that there were only surprisingly seven genes. This is very surprising because as you can see on the left, there were lots of genes that were dramatically different across all of these time points. So really only seven showed up as being statistically different. And so that gave us a, dire <coughs> excuse me, a direction to go in which we could begin to examine the function of these genes, meaning if there are genes that are increased or decreased in expression between a male and a female placenta, that might give us an idea of how a change in the environment could interact differently for a male than a female, changing the information again the developing brain is seeing. So I'm going to show you here now is this list. Some of you may know some of these genes. It may mean nothing to some of you. But what I want to highlight, the gene uh, identification is on the left. Uh, and then they're showing the protein function on the right. And the um, sex difference across 12, 15, and 18 is just showing you the embryonic points. Higher in is really showing you the fact that it's either higher in a male or higher in a female. And what I want to point out is that all of these genes, all seven, are either on the X chromosome or the Y chromosome. So in the case of the males, those top four genes are of course higher expressed in a male placenta because it's on the Y chromosome and they don't exist in the female placenta. And the bottom three are genes that are escaping X inactivation, meaning normally one of the X uh, chromosomes would be inactivated. There are some genes that will escape that process. And what ultimately happens then is that they're uh, twice as high expression in a female cell compared to a male cell. Okay, so I want to take a second because I know many of you are probably confused and I, even in the scientific realm I get this question a lot. In utero with a litter, as I said, each embryo is developing, its, has its own placenta. There's not just one giant placenta in, in, the, in the uterus that they all feed off of. There's sometimes confusion there. So each one. So for doing these studies, um, we can do different exposures of the mouse during different stages of pregnancy. And then we can take one male and one female and one male and one female placenta across all different exposures and begin to assess these changes. So again, this list is just showing you basally, before we even do any exposure, there are already differences in genes that are expressed in the male or female placenta coming from the same uterus. And if you look on the right, uh, the protein function that is demonstrated for each of these genes is really important in that 
they're very much genes that are important for how other genes are expressed. So they're important for understanding uh, chromatin and how large sets of genes will be regulated. And so that's very important because what it says is that these genes with very broad potential processes that they're important for already are different in a male cell of the placenta than a female, which may position those sex differences to then respond more appropriately or less appropriately in a male or female, ultimately placing one of the, the sex's brains at more risk. Okay, so this is just showing you uh, the image on the left there is actually a developing fetus and what it's attached to there is the placenta and this is actually just an image showing you there are ways in which we can use tools to image the, the, the developing tissues as well and I'll get back to that in a, in a, in a minute. Um, so one of the genes as I showed you in that previous slide one of the seven candidates that we know to be very important now is called OGT. It stands for O-glycosyltransferase and this OGT gene is critically important for many different functions. I'll show you in a second. And because we identified this one specific gene from a large-scale screen, um, as was pointed out by Alicia earlier, we are able to use transgenic manipulation to alter genes to ask about their important functions. So I'll show you data from that. But just to get everybody up to speed on what this really important gene does, so when OGT is made into uh, its protein function, it's an enzyme. O-glycosyltransferase. And what O-glycosyltransferase does is it's sort of an intermediary between uh, nutrient availability in the environment, uh, predominantly glucose, so how much sugar is available in the environment, determines a lot about the function of this gene. And we know that it's important in everything from embryogenesis, determining metabolism, programming immunity, determining cardiovascular disease risk. So all of those have been established important functions of OGT. The part that's newest and of most interest is how OGT functions in the nucleus and how it's really important for epigenetic regulation. Again, so how we determine expression patterns of wide sets of genes. And why that's important is because how different patterns of genes are able to be expressed determines many things about cellular function. So you can imagine you go into the nucleus of a trophoblast cell within the placenta, difference between a male and a female cell, change the function of that cell, it now is making different information that then can be relayed to the developing male or female brain. And what this red patch at the top here is showing you is that this gene called OGT is on the X chromosome, which is showing you here in red, and it's located very close to a gene called EXIST. And some of you may know that the EXIST gene is uh, is a long non-coding RNA. It's very important for coding and turning off or inactivating one of the X chromosomes in all cells in females. So its location here also suggests that it may interact and therefore be broadly important in determining genes that may escape X inactivation in cells, again, pointing to sex differences in disease risk. Okay, so this is a bunch of data that I'm going to show you, and this is really just a way of establishing in our mouse model the importance and the regulation of this one gene that we focused on and how it might ultimately change brain development. So all you need to really understand here is this is just, these are biochemical blots. So there is a way that we can actually look at the levels of this protein. This is showing you F is a female, 
M is a male. These are placental tissues. And it's just showing you exactly what we expect, that the levels, because it's an X-linked gene and escaping X inactivation, the levels of this gene and protein are twice as high in a female placenta as they are in a male. And in fact, the function, one of the functions of OGT is to place a biochemical mark called O-glycosylation. It doesn't matter for the point of this talk, but this is just another biochemical blot showing you that not only are its levels statistically different, but its function is dramatically changed. Again, showing you that the levels of all proteins in the placenta are twice as high in a female than they are in a male. Again, this comes back to the functional importance of what the developing brain may be seeing. So what's our current model? Why do we think this is important? What I'm showing you on the right is actual data that supports our hypothesis. C is a control non-stressed pregnancy. Then again, we have the early prenatal stress. The two graph bars here on the left are female. The two on the right are male. And what it's suggesting is that the levels being twice as high in a female compared to a male, you're starting off at a different baseline, now you have that environmental exposure that's interacting with this difference. And while both males and females are responding, the males are becoming significantly lower, suggesting that functionally the placenta is changing. Right? So now the levels of this one protein that's so important broadly are changing, and it may then be shaping the information the developing male brain is seeing, but not the female. So coming back to one of my uh, original points, which is this may suggest an increased male risk, but the baseline difference here where females start off with more may actually suggest an increased resilience for females, meaning they're able at even the very genetic level to moderate or dampen responses to the environment that males are not, putting males at greater risk. So what does this have to do with humans? Well, we were able actually to obtain de-identified human placental tissues from the University of Pennsylvania. And we were able to obtain biopsies from these placentas. We don't know anything about the course of the pregnancy, but we just wanted to ensure that this gene was important in the human placenta and that it was also uh, X linkage, so X chromosome dosage responsive, meaning you would expect that in a male versus a female placenta of humans, you would again see this difference in the levels of OGT. And that is in fact what we see. So this is again showing you a biochemical um, figure. The left is the graph of this data. And what it's showing you is a comparison in the human placenta from births widely um, uh, given at the University of Pennsylvania, that on the XX, the, the fetal side of the placenta, the levels are twice as high again as they are in the male, which is what we'd expect. And the biochemical outcome here is showing you the same thing we saw in the mouse, which is the O-glycosylated protein, so the function of this one gene and what it does in the placenta that's so important is again twice as high in the female placenta as it is in the male. So we like to think of this as potentially being a, a point at which this places males at risk for environmental exposure during pregnancy. It may also place females at a point of resilience to respond to that, and I'll show you some data on why we think that. Okay, so this is a very complicated slide for those who don't have a genetic background, but all you need to understand is why we think this one specific gene is so important for sex differences. 
So for those who, who don't have an appreciation maybe of a genetic background, I'll walk you through this. So this is the, one of the functions of OGT that I, I pointed to earlier. So one of the things that OGT does in the nucleus of the cell, all cells, but uh, specifically we're talking about the placenta, is that we know that it's increased in females. And one of its functions is to stabilize this other really important protein called EZH2. Why is that important? Well, EZH2 is a protein in the nucleus that intersects with histones. And we all remember from our, our biology class that histones are an important part of wrapping DNA, and they determine which genes get expressed and when. And these little methylation marks here that I'm showing you, the circles, are those biochemical marks I was talking about earlier. And of course, there are proteins that are important for those biochemical marks. And what those biochemical marks do is that they determine the gene wrapped around this histone is not going to be expressed. If we remove those methylation points, then the gene wrapped around this histone might get expressed. So it's a way in which the cell is able to navigate and regulate genes how and when they're expressed. So we know that OGT is critical for these methylation marks that I'm showing you here, meaning on this specific histone in these specific places, it's really essential because this is what's called a repressive mark. So if there's a lot of this protein around because there's a lot of this protein around, you will see dramatic repression, meaning inhibition of gene expression. So maybe we don't want changes in how genes are being expressed at the, this particular developmental window. That's what I'm showing you here. So we asked that question in our model, right? So what this graph is just showing you is exactly what we expect. Females have more of OGT, yes. So we would expect more of this methylation mark at this histone, and that's what this is showing you here. Females have way more of this histone methylation mark than the males do, supporting the fact if your genome is protected, repressed, so it's not going to respond to stress in the environment in the female, that may be that resilience factor. Whereas in the male, they don't have that repression going on at this particular time, and therefore they may then gen genetically be responding to the environment. Um, and, and this particular time window may suggest that that's a bad thing for the developing brain. So as Alicia pointed out, my lab uses mice because we can manipulate the genome by using transgenics. So this is a, a slide which highlights how we do this. There are ways in which we can make mice that will transgenically, meaning we have added DNA to their genome to allow it to make a, a protein that we want to do a, a specific function. And we can drive expression of that specific gene and we can direct it to really, really specific cells. So because we want to ask about OGT, we want to know as scientists the evidence that this one gene in cells of the placenta is important for brain development. Because if we can figure that out, then we can start to ask questions translationally in the human and disease. So we were able to cross these different lines of mice we are able to direct this to trophoblasts, so those cells of the placenta we've been talking about, specifically target lowering of this OGT, so we don't have to even use stress now. We can just target the gene minus the stress. And we can do that, and we can ask the question then of those offspring, if we reduce OGT similar to what the males see with stress, 
do we see sex differences again in outcomes? So this is just showing you that we can drive the expression of this particular protein during the same window we would have been stressing. We can lower the levels of this gene in, oh, in the placenta over the remainder of, of pregnancy and see what impact it has on the developing brain. So this data is just showing you again, this, these are the stress hormone levels. So these offspring have now grown up. And we can now ask, uh, if you were uh, an animal that developed with a placenta that had really low levels of this OGT, do you see a difference in how you respond to stress as an adult? Because we know that's one of the features we're interested in. And the answer is overall yes. And we see sex differences again here, where the male offspring are showing this heightened stress reactivity, and the females are showing a protective effect and a lower stress reactivity. So just by manipulating this one gene in the placenta, in the same uterus even, those offspring, those litter mates coming from the same mom will show very different responses to the manipulation of that one gene. And because pictures are worth a thousand words, what I'm showing you here are pictures of our adorable mice. On the top are male mice, on the bottom are female mice. And what it's showing you, again, as I uh, reiterated from early on, which is that many neurodevelopmental disorders, and autism is certainly the case, where children will present with difficulties in gastrointestinal symptoms, metabolism, etc. And so one of the things that we see in our stress model and this is I'm showing you in males and females, if we manipulate this one gene in the trophoblastal, in the cells of the placenta only, that these offspring, when they grow up, have gastrointestinal differences such that they are smaller, so they grow a little bit less, and you can see that they're leaner. So both on the top, I'm showing you that the OGT manipulated uh, litter mate here is smaller. He's a little bit shorter, and he definitely weighs uh, significantly less. Excuse me, and the same is true for females. So on the top is known as a wild type, which just means that they have normal levels of OGT in the placenta. When we start to manipulate OGT in the placenta, either cut it in half or knock it out, we see again the same effect that we see with our stress. So as a scientist, you really like to see this because this demonstrates or supports your hypothesis that one single gene we identified in a screen is critically important in its function in the placenta and that it imparts an effect on the developing offspring that impacts them throughout their lifespan. The data on the right is just showing you if we wanted to ask about questions in the developing brain, we can actually take these mice as adults and take pieces of their brain that are important for how they respond and cope to stress and we can do large-scale screens I don't have to define that for everybody, but I think you can clearly see these are offspring that had normal OGT levels in the placenta, right? So there's one, two, three, four, five animals. Here you have uh, animals that had OGT manipulated in the placenta. These are all from adult animals. And you can clearly see if we're looking each line here, which you obviously cannot read, is a different gene. And so what it's saying is the brains of these animals develop dramatically differently. So if a gene is expressed high in these animals, it's low in these, and vice versa here. So this is just a picture to demonstrate the changes in the brain and how important this one gene in the placenta is. I'm only showing you this piece of data because it's been very clear in the literature, uh, epidemiologically as well as in clinical studies, that there is an interesting mitochondrial difference reported in children with autism within the brain in different brain regions. 
And one of the things that came from, I'm just going to take a second to go back here, which you obviously can't see, but when we look at all of these genes that are different in expression in the brains of these animals, one of the patterns we see is the difference in genes that are important to metabolism and mitochondrial function. So there's a way that we can assess this to ask this question in our animals. And so in fact we can look at animals that have had the OGT manipulated in their placenta and we can look at animals similarly that were exposed to prenatal stress. And what these, these graphs are showing you that when we look at how the mitochondria in their brains reacts in this assay, you can see there's, there's a significant change, meaning over the course of development, because of the information that the developing brain was receiving from the placenta, it is shaping how the energy is utilized within the brain. And that can determine so many important things about brain function, in large part about how the, the neurons are activated. So we think that's very important. So one of the last things that I want to touch on here in sex differences and the technology that we can use in the lab is a way in which we can understand and appreciate by looking at, it's called RNA sequencing, meaning we can look at all genes that are being expressed at different periods of time in the developing brain. And so what this is showing you here is a late gestation. So this is embryonic day 18.5, so maybe a day or so before these animals were going to be born. So their only exposures have been in utero. This is a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is a, a part of the brain in which how your energy utilization, your growth, your reproduction, your feeding, metabolism, stress are all regulated. It's a very essential part of the brain. It develops very early in brain development, so we think that it's really important in shaping how our stress in mom is producing sex differences in the brain. So what I'm showing you on the left are all the changes in gene expression Right, so just widely in this particular brain region, in females. So if you're a female from a non-stressed mom, and we're comparing you to a female from a stressed mom, if you are statistically different in all genes expressed at this window before you're born, there will be a red dot. And what you'll note is that there are a few. There's probably one, two, three, you know, there's a low number of red dots here. What that's saying is there are not a lot of dramatic changes in the female developing brain if mom's been exposed to stress. Okay, so if you now look over at the right, what you're seeing here in the male offspring are a lot of red dots. This is really, really exciting because what this says, if we're comparing a male from um, a control mom not exposed to stress and comparing his gene expression with a male whose mom was exposed to stress, dramatic differences are being relayed to this developing brain in the males that don't exist in females. And so in the summary, this really just highlights the fact that in utero, different experiences and exposures that happen to mom seem to be relaying information from mom, likely interacting with the developing placenta, and really changing the, the, the outcomes and the life span that's going to be uh, present in this for the male that we just don't see in the female. And we think that is in large part because there are these mechanisms in place because of sex chromosome genes that have a resilience sort of built in in utero for females that is just not present in males. And so it's placing those male brains in utero at greater risk because they're responding dramatically uh, to that changing environment, which uh, in the case of neurodevelopmental disease, 
may be a, a bad thing, meaning that the changes are not appropriate for the environment that we live in. So just to round out, back to some more interesting biochemistry, you, you remember I showed you this schematic earlier. So if we really think that this repressive mark, this really important mark, which is called H3K27 trimethylated, not really important, right? I showed you that we see these big differences in the placentas between a female and a male. And sure enough, if we manipulate, again, this gene, OGT, we do in fact see that we relieve that that, that repressive mark, meaning even in a female now. And so as was pointed out by Dr. Whirling, right, we're, we're really at the forefront now of trying to understand the genetic risk that might be intersecting with environmental risks. So I think this just kind of ends this webinar on a note of understanding one gene and its potential mechanisms, whereby if someone, an individual, may have a, a SNP that changes OGT itself or something downstream in terms of repression that it might put then females might actually be showing up with things like autism which we know uh, based on Dr. Whirling's talk that there are a greater genetic risk. So it appears to be a natural intersection for males because they start off with these really dramatic low levels already. So now you add an environmental risk such as maternal stress, maternal immune activation, maternal dietary challenge, and you can imagine how you're now going to present with an increased disease for males compared to females. All right, so now if you manipulate that genetically, you can increase that risk for the females as well. So I just want to end on, before we take any questions, understanding how we can take these animal models, which are so essential for understanding disease, risk, and resilience, and we can now move them into the realm of humans. As I showed you, we've actually looked at this gene and its pathways and its patterns in, in the human uh, placenta, and it's very, very similar to what we see in the mouse. So now we can pursue this gene and its function and the risk and resilience in humans, and we're working with different groups who have prospective placental tissue to begin asking questions about this function and if we can demonstrate how this may be important for relaying information to the developing brain, then we can be excited to, to go forward with figuring out ways of therapeutic intervention, maybe being able to use it as a biomarker for predictive disease risk, to identify children who may have changes in brain development much earlier than we currently can. And so that's the direction that the lab is currently going and using our different animal models to support uh, human disease, which is so uh, incredibly important. So these are some of, the, <clears throat> some of the members of my lab, excuse me, who are doing a lot of this work. It's really important to acknowledge their efforts in the lab and how they continue to do these studies. Uh, Bridget Nugent is a postdoc in my lab, and she's the one who doing, who's interacting with a lot of the human studies as well, the amazing collaborations we have ongoing at Penn. And I need to put out a big thank you and shout out to the National Institute of Mental Health. We have a number of grants on these studies, both maternal exposures as well as paternal. Uh, and I will highlight that while we've talked today extensively about sex differences in relation to maternal exposures, that my lab is also uh, doing studies both in animal models and in the translational realm. Um, understanding dad's risk, so how dad contributes as well. Understanding the changes in his germ cells, exposures to the environment, and we're hoping that if we can identify some of those biomarkers, we might be able to also contribute to 
uh, disease prevention at that level as well. So, so thank you for your time and attention, and I'm happy to take any questions. Hey everybody, this is Alicia. So first of all, thank you Dr. Bale and thank you Dr. Worling. I have to have a personal bias here and say that I think this is one of the more interesting not only topics but sets of presentations that we've had in this webinar series. And of course I might be a little biased because one of Autism Science Foundation's um, funding priorities is to look at the female protective effect. So just take that as it is. Um, I do want to um, tell everyone, I put it on the chat, we're having a little bit of a problem um, with the, um, sorry, with the question box. I see a couple questions came in, but some people said they um, had some problems with uh, the question box. So if you want to put it in either the question box or the chat box, I'm going to take like two minutes and um, talk about maybe just like summarizing the main points. Um, First of all, uh, I want to put another plug out, as, as Dr. Bale did, for these studies that look at prenatal factors and follow people longitudinally over time. There haven't been that many in autism. Um, I don't know which study Dr. Bale's talking about that she's collaborating with, but there is a study going on, or was going on, University of Pennsylvania that was collecting um, placental uh, samples from high-risk pregnancies, that they had a high risk of having a child with autism, and so this is exactly the sort of research that these you know, prospective longitudinal studies have. You don't really know what the, what can be used with the data or how they will be used, but you want to collect as much as possible. Um, also, I thought it was interesting um, that there seems to be this kind of convergence um, of uh, uh, genetic and environmental factors. Um, whether you think of whether you think of um, environmental stress as a whole being kind of um, you know, just like a hole in a mouse is being maybe a conglomeration of different toxic exposures or a paternal age or anything that can perturb normal development, I think, um, may encapsulate stress, which means, you know, it makes it, but it doesn't seem like it has a whole lot of face validity for families with autism. I think that's the meaning for, for why it's, why that's looked at. Um, and also I wanted to kind of throw out there and maybe the, 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 um, both of the, the, review, the, present, the presenters can comment on this, is with autism there seems to be this difference in prevalence that um, is kind of co uh, coincident with um, cognitive function. And I wondered what, the, you know, what to think about whether or not any or it, it doesn't seem to be like any of the specific genes, but maybe um, cognitive function in people with, with autism may be kind of a downstream effect and one of the more regulatory regions that affects IQ. Um, it, it may be either specific to IQ or it may be more general. I also want to say two things um, about the animal model. So Dr. Worling's presentation and Dr. Um, Bale's presentation talked about two aspects of genetics, which um, I think it was really nice that both of them were presented, is one is looking at the gene sequence and looking at things like de novo mutations in males and females with autism. And the second, which Dr. Bale did, was more of gene expression. So looking at different genes and how they influence the expression of other genes. Um, so without any further ado, what I'm going to do is um, uh, throw some questions out there. Um, one of them is whether or not, Dr. Bale, you've seen anything with um, 
prenatal smoking, or have you really looked at prenatal smoking or tobacco exposure in any of your studies? So my lab does not do uh, studies on nicotine because we're pretty focused on the stress. We've done things like immune challenge, and interestingly, we see the same outcome in terms of male risk and female resilience. Uh, other labs actually have uh, begun, there's actually a group that is involved in this at Penn, University of Pennsylvania, that has been looking at maternal exposure and transgenerational um, uh, passage from uh, maternal smoking. And those studies are underway. I'm not uh, I'm sure if they've uh, produced any really mechanistic outcomes yet, but they're definitely being studied. The National Institute of Mental Health, uh, as well as the National Institute of Drug Abuse, have partnered up. And so there are several different programs that are looking at animal models and then trying to translate that into um, clinical studies as well. So yeah, my lab has not done that. We have another question. Um, is OGT, and maybe Dr. Whirling knows this, is OGT one of the autism safari risk genes? So the um, Simons Foundation for Autism Research has looked at the weight of evidence around different risk genes for autism. Um, is OGT one of those? Donna, do you know that? I don't know that off the top of my head, but I could check and get back to you in just a minute. Okay, okay. <laughs> and then also, is there uh, any data to show the response of this hormone to steroid hormones? So OGT's response to steroid hormones. That's a great question, actually. I think it kind of falls into the purview of, of I know, of, um, a lot of Jill's interests. So the one of the functions that we've noted, right, so the question would be what information is the male placenta producing to the male brain that the female placenta is not? And that's one of the things that we're really interested in defining because it would be a much easier way to sort of look at biomarkers and prediction if we knew what the information was. So we've done a lot of um, metabolomics and proteomics and other screens of these placentas at different stages to try to get at that. What is the different function? And interestingly, one of the things that OGT seems to be changing is the placenta's ability to metabolize and produce different steroid hormones. So in the male placenta, which usually produces an abundance of testosterone, uh, which which is a metabolic process that has to occur, um, OGT seems to be disrupting this pathway. So it seems to be altering uh, testosterone levels in the placenta, which is pretty new evidence. Um, there's a lot of studies that have examined testosterone in um, amniotic fluid in association with autism and autism-like symptoms, as well as in um, cord blood and in the baby, I know. So it's, it's interesting that we come right back to, you know, this, this was a, a non-biased approach that we used, that we're again seeing steroidogenic processes that are altered in these placentas that may suggest somehow an intersection with how steroid hormones are produced earlier that impact the brain than we thought. Um, someone had a question about the last slide, Dr. Bale, so I don't know if you can go back to the last slide. Um, they say that the knockout males seem to have higher levels, sorry, not that last slide, yeah, the knockout males seem to have higher levels of hormones than the wild-type males. Um, yeah, if you look at this, that. You're talking about this slide? Yeah, I think so. Um, can you please comment on that because it seems to be uh, counterintuitive. Uh, so if it's this slide you're referring to, so 
this is a biochemical outcome. So, um, okay, if you look over on the left, you can see these bands that are on the top. I guess they didn't show up on, on this uh, graph on the right. So these are bands, not hormones being produced. What the differences here at the bottom between this wild type male placenta and the knockout women, they're, they're negligible. So in the realm of biochemistry, this is meaningless. They're, yeah, they're, it may look like there's something different here, but the, if you look at the air bar, there's, there's no difference. So they're not producing anything more. It, this, is really, this really shows you that there really is so little of this mark, this biochemical mark. Uh, once you got down to this level, there's, there's nothing functionally different going on here. Okay. Um, we have one last question. Um, and uh, Donna, I don't know if you're still searching for that gene um, in Safari database, oh, yeah. but um, I, I, I found it. If you want, okay. is it is is it on there, or is it what, where does it stand? So it is listed in the Safari gene database, although the primary reference, so like the the main reference, the reason why it got on the list was um, the paper that Dr. Vale referenced. Um, <laughs> Right. So that's good. No, that's, that's good. So I want, yeah. I want, I want to make sure that you know while we've demonstrated that this gene is critically important for how the brain develops and sex differences, that you can imagine any SNPs and genes that are also upstream or downstream could also be equally important, right? So that would you know take down all day to go through all the different uh, candidates potentially. There might be, there right. might be multiple stages along this pathway that could be. Right, because each one of those things is also a gene. So. Right. Um, yeah, that's a good point and goes back to the idea of it being, you know, looking at the gene sequences versus looking at, you know, right patterns or, or gene expression. So we have one right. last question for Dr. Worling. So because our families have no history, because some of the families have no history of autism or anything like it, and because um, this family has two children with profound autism, they're guessing that there were de novo mutations or ep mutations in the sex cells. Um, they would like to enroll in a study to better understand what might have happened and how to detect um, whether or not there were de novo mutations or um, epi mutations. Um, do you have any suggestions about studies that they might want to enroll in that might help yield relevant information? That's a great question. I don't know if Donna has any, has any uh, insight on that. I don't. Um, I know, gosh, just off the top of my head, only one, one major study that I know of that is really recruiting hard right now is the Safari Spark mm. study. Um, Simon's Foundation Autism Research Initiative is what that stands for, and they're trying to recruit, I believe, upwards of 50,000 families, the biggest autism family sample they can possibly collect, and they are um, mainly, I think they're only collecting saliva samples, so you don't even have to do a blood draw. Now that kind of study would, I believe, would only be able to look for um, changes to genetic sequence, um, and it wouldn't be looking for epigenetic differences, but it could provide an answer in, in the realm of of genetic mutations that may have occurred during a sperm or egg cell development. Well, I'm so sorry that we don't have any more time for any other questions. I want to thank both of you for giving amazing presentations. You wouldn't believe the comments that have been coming in about how great this has been and really uh, informative in terms of looking at sex differences in autism. 
Um, thank you guys so much. I just want to remind everyone that the webinar will be posted on asfpodcast.org in the next couple of days. So anyone that didn't get a chance to um, or wants to rewatch it, had to jump off, or thinks that someone that they know may be interested in seeing it can um, go to asfpodcast.org. So thank you all very, very much, and a special, special thanks to both of you. Dr. Bale is at a conference, and Dr. Whirling barely um, sque squeezed by having to, um, or, or served her civic duty on jury duty, but then also um, was able to do this today. So thank you so much. Yeah, the society, the society is very supportive, so they gave me I'm in a little press room, kind of in the back of the convention. Oh wow! Okay, thank you. Tell them thank you so much. Yeah, they're very supportive. So, yep. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye bye.